Hey everyone, it's Meredith. Today is not a Love Letters episode drop. Instead, on this off week, you're getting the first episode of a new podcast made by a voice that might sound familiar. Mark Shanahan is my life person, my chosen family. Some would call him my work spouse, but I prefer to call him the person who's number one on the favorites list in my cell phone. I wrote an entire chapter about Mark in my memoir, and Mark actually appeared on season two, episode one of Love Letters. He's the guy who was afraid to set people up on dates, that married guy who thought that single people could find love at Whole Foods. Anyway, in 2013, Mark was diagnosed with prostate cancer. He was in his 40s. It was scary and strange, and he and his family had to figure out how to manage their lives while Mark got treatment for a disease that affects so many men. It was overwhelming. Mark and our friends at the Boston Globe have created a podcast. It's called Mr. 80%, and yes, that refers to something sexual. It's a story about the very universal experience of prostate cancer, caretaking, and living. I have to tell you, it is funny, sad, ridiculous, involves a lot of real talk about sex, and it also features me and my sister, Brett. Mark is transparent about his story, and best of all, it's really a narrative about his incredible family, including his wife, Michelle, with whom I share a love of sexy romance novels. That's all explained in the podcast. So your treat today is episode one of Mr. 80%. We'll be back next week with Love Letters. You can find the rest of Mr. 80% on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you enjoy it. What do you know about the job of the prostate? What it no, does? I don't know a goddamn thing about it. So you have no idea what its function is. If, no. I, if I told you that it creates ejaculant, its whole job is to make ejaculant? I had no idea. So if I told you that I had my prostate removed, what do you think then happens? That you don't ejaculate anymore? That means that I have an orgasm and the sensation is, you know... As, but, as, but, but nothing comes out? Well, there's a like little stick and a flag unfurls and it says bang. <laughs> From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Mr. 80%, a podcast about living, dying, and being a man, even if it's not the same man you used to be. I'm Mark Shanahan. Before we begin, a quick note on gender. Prostate cancer doesn't care how you identify. If you have a prostate, this podcast is for you. And if you love someone who has a prostate, this podcast is also for you. Because when this disease strikes, as you'll hear, it's a family affair. Episode 1, 12 Uneasy Pieces. When I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, I didn't know anything. I knew my dad had it, but he was old. He was my dad. I was only 47. I discovered age doesn't matter. Prostate cancer is absurdly common. About 200,000 men in the U.S. are diagnosed with it every year, and 30,000 die from it. If you're African-American, the numbers are even worse. Prostate cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death among American men. Look, if you're over 70 in America and you don't have prostate cancer, you're probably a woman. 
So why doesn't anyone want to talk about it? We're all very reticent about our bottoms. It has to be faced. That's Stephen Fry, the great actor, comedian, author, and prostate cancer survivor. He's an evangelist for talking about it. We're as tightly sealed, if I can put it that way, as we've ever been since Genesis. Since we were expelled from Eden, we still have this, the good French word is pudeur, this shame. He's right. You want to know what douses sparkling dinner party conversation faster than a mention of prostate cancer? Not much. There are so many things that a human being should be ashamed of. Cruelty, lies, deceit, duplicity, betrayal, abuse, and so on. All the things we do wrong. But having a bottom and genitals and all that goes and, and pertains thereto is not something of which we should ever be ashamed and for which we should ever apologize. Like mushrooms, these things thrive in the dark. And the more light you cast on anything to do with the genitourinary area, the more chance people have of uh, forestalling any disasters. Early in 2018, Fry posted a video on YouTube announcing to the world that he had prostate cancer. Now, what is a prostate? You may well wonder. I'm still not that certain myself. It's, a, it's not an organ so much as a, a gland, I believe. Um, and it sits between a, a man, because only men have them, a man's bladder uh, and, uh, and his, uh, his old feather, his todger, I suppose. When I came across Fry's video, I was charmed and surprised. If this eminent English gentleman could be so frank about his old feather, his todger, and its anatomical function, surely a hack like me could, too. I'm Anthony Zeitman. I'm a professor of radiation oncology here at the Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, and I've been here for over 30 years. Dr. Zeitman's my radiation oncologist. He's a superstar in his field. He's funny. I believe the Brits say droll. And he's up front. He told me the truth, no matter how unpleasant. Dr. Zeitman says Fry's candor upends decades of tradition. The tradition of saying nothing. Certainly men who were raised during the Second World War, came of age in the 1950s, would keep down there, sort of quiet. It just wasn't a subject for discussion, not in nice society. And you certainly didn't share your experience with your buddies, you didn't share it with women, and you weren't going to march on the streets advocating on your own behalf. But silence equals ignorance, and ignorance can kill. Prostate cancer was always a, I won't call it an orphan disease, but it was always well behind breast cancer. Women marched on Washington, D.C., raised the profile of breast cancer in the eyes of Capitol Hill, arranged funding, and men were just late to the game. Think about it. Frank Zappa died at 52, Johnny Ramone at 55, Langston Hughes was 65. All of them died from prostate cancer. If our culture were different, less, I don't know, uptight, could they have been saved? Could their stories have saved others? Stephen Fry is certainly trying. His YouTube video was a revelation. Rarely had anyone been so public about their prostate cancer let alone someone like Fry with 12 million Twitter followers. The video went viral, and the effect was dramatic. Britain's National Health Service reported a massive spike in diagnoses of the disease. Not because prostate cancer was suddenly more prevalent, but because so many more men got their PSA checked. I'll pause here to say, 
If you're a guy of a certain age and you don't know what PSA stands for, you need to pay more attention. Now, I don't know if you know what PSA levels are. I hope you do. If you're a man, you certainly should do. It stands for prostate-specific antigen. It used to be we relied on digital rectal exams to find prostate cancer. Doctors would snap on a rubber glove, make a bit of chit-chat, and then, oof, tunnel a well-lubricated finger into your rectum. If you can't remember whether you've had a digital rectal exam, you haven't. But you still know what it is. All right, Mr. Griffin, I'm just going to need you to drop your pants and we'll check your prostate. Sir, how's this work? You just feel my pulse, so we're... Ah! 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 In the early 90s, after studies linked prostate cancer to an elevated PSA, doctors began using a simple blood test to screen men for the disease. But know this about your PSA. It's one data point. It's not the whole story. An elevated PSA means you need to watch it. It doesn't mean, necessarily, you need treatment, at least right away. We know this now. Back in medieval times, like the 80s, we didn't. We used the word cancer. Cancer led to treatment. That was treatment in the 80s and 90s at the time when the radical prostatectomy was... I hate to use the word barbaric, but I'm going to use the word barbaric. And radiation was crude. Before 1982, for reasons we'll explore in a later episode, every guy who had his prostate removed was left impotent. Every single guy. So this disease, prostate cancer, it can kill you. It can render you impotent. It can land you in diapers. And yet most guys know absolutely nothing about the prostate. Like, where is it? Let me just say, JetBlue does not fly direct. It's in there. Is it uh, bigger than a bread box? It's interesting that you mentioned size. Um, it is about the size of a walnut. That's Mark Pomerantz. He's a medical oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. He's brainy, basketball tall, and a leading expert in the genetics of prostate cancer. He's my doctor. What he says about the incidence of this disease is pretty stark. If we took 100 guys your age off the street and magically took out their prostates, chopped it up, looked under the microscope, we'd find prostate cancer in a majority of them. Do most men understand what is going on when they're diagnosed and that the twin evils of incontinence and erectile dysfunction are kind of like facts on the ground? The short answer is no, men are not adequately informed about what they're about to walk into. I'll say. How much of your personal story are, are you everything. making public? Okay. Everything. Okay. Everything. Even a guy who studies this disease for a living acknowledges there's a lot we don't know about it. There are still many mysteries surrounding the prostate gland. It is located in a very busy neighborhood just below the bladder. The prostate is responsible for generating many of the important fluids and ingredients that go into the semen that help the sperm reach its target. In other words, and in the delicate prose of WebMD, the prostate produces the fluid that, quote, nourishes and protects sperm. 
It makes ejaculate. This is where my expertise comes in. We'll be right back. Since we're sharing, I had my first orgasm in the seventh grade, barely five minutes after I found a magazine in my brother's closet with soft focus photos of a curvy Sophia Loren lookalike. Ever since, I gotta say, ejaculation, it's been a friend of mine. Not that I ever thanked my prostate. I'll bet my best friends never thanked theirs either. They don't even know what the prostate is. How do I know? Because I asked them. Every summer we spend a week together on Cape Cod. Last time, I got some of them on tape. If I ask you where, where the prostate is located, what do you say? Uh, up my butt. And uh, maybe, I don't know precisely, but like, you know. Up, my, up your butt. Well, not yours, but. Right. You asked where mine was. Yeah. Well, well, wait, wait, wait. So what do you know about what the, what do you know about what the prostate does? I really know nothing about what it does, honestly. So here's the question. Uh, what do you know about what the prostate is? Uh, what do I know about the prostate? What's the function? Yeah, what is the function? What does it do? What's the, what is uh, the function uh. of the prostate? Okay, so, so you're not going to use my name, right? <laughs> With apologies to Prince, dig, if you will, this picture. I'm lying on my side in a windowless hospital room. My bare ass is exposed. I'm clutching my wife's hand. Michelle doesn't have to be here. It's not required that your partner watch as you get your prostate biopsied, but I'm really glad she is. My cotton johnny is soaked with sweat, and the procedure hasn't even started. It's October, 2013. Until now, I'm a guy with a pretty decent life. We have two incredible kids. Our son Beckett is nine hilarious, handsome, and he still puts his arm around me in the stop and shop. Julia's 13. Like her brother, she's funny. She's also smart, incisive, and a big reader like her mom. She's not, as the parenting books predicted, an unrecognizable meanager. Michelle and I, after focusing so much of our attention on the children, are finally enjoying each other again, if you know what I mean. We both have jobs we love, Michelle's a social worker. She's unflappable and selfless. I'm an entertainment writer for the Boston Globe, which means I drink a lot of mediocre Chardonnay at parties and interview Mac Wahlberg about his new movie. But lying here in the hospital room, I'm a long way from all that. Something resembling your grandmother's longest knitting needle is being inserted way up my rectum. Over my shoulder, a machine makes a terrible clapping sound each time it snips a tiny piece of my prostate. Twelve terrible claps. And yet I still manage to make Michelle smile. I remember that I was watching to see how you interact with doctors, and you are your same self. <laughs> you're cracking jokes, you're making everybody laugh. We'd been watching my PSA for a while because of my family history. My father was 70 when he was treated. My PSA was slightly elevated which can mean cancer, or not. Lots of things can raise your PSA. Riding a bike can. Having sex can. I don't own a bike, but my wife and I, we were back in the saddle. Honestly, though, before the biopsy, I wasn't all that worried. 
prostate cancer is something old guys get. The average age at diagnosis is 66. I was 20 years younger. My mother used to call me Peter Pan. I don't remember Peter Pan having issues with his prostate. Six days after my biopsy, I was in traffic, driving inches per hour on my way home from work. My commute could not have been any worse. Then my cell phone rang. One of the big takeaways from this whole experience is if you get a call from a restricted number on your cell phone, bad news. Yeah. It's very bad news. I got another call from... I'm recalling the moment with the guy who was on the other end of the line that gray fall evening. My primary care doctor, James Morrill. But can you talk to me about as you pick up the phone to make that call? Yeah. What's, what's that like? It feels hard because you know that you're gonna change somebody's immediate plans and you're gonna change potentially somebody's life in some way with those words. And we don't think enough about how it feels on the other end. Dr. Morrill is all the good doctor things. He's empathetic and easy to talk to. If you have to find out you're sick, you could do a lot worse than have Dr. Morrill break the news. I thought I was going to die. I mean, somebody tells you that, sorry, uh, you have cancer. You know, I was young and I had two small children and this was very, very upsetting. I'm thinking about, oh my God, I've got to get my affairs in order. I'm not sure I was fully aware of that, Mark. That's part of why you can't rush that conversation is because part of what you do have to do is assess how the person you're talking to is reacting right then and there. I'm not suggesting that you did anything no, no, I wrong. I just am saying that, and you're right, I then did take a breath, go home, have a bourbon, talk to my wife. So we were able to then start on the road of, you know, what do we need to do and how do we need to do it and who are the people we need to talk to? So that was fine. There were lots of people we needed to talk to. People I didn't even know existed before that day. Specialists who'd guide me through my new life with cancer. But first, I had to tell my kids. I think I just took it to, like, like if he actually died, I w would basically lose my best friend. This is my daughter, Julia. She's in college now. They say, like, we're not your best friend. Like, we're your parent. But, like, he's my best friend. <laughs> Having cancer means you get a preview of what your kid might say at your funeral. You're the funniest person I've ever met. I think you're one of the most supportive and hardworking people I've ever met. And I also think you're one of the most intense people I've ever met. And you've really taught me, like, if you're going to do something, you have to do it 100%. It's true. I did teach her that. You have a very impressive career. And so I always, like, looked up to that. And by impressive, you mean I have talked to BJ Novak. Yeah, and you took me to a Taylor Swift concert where she gave me her bracelet. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's not a good day when you have to tell your children that you have a condition that could quite possibly take you from them. It sucks for you, but not like it sucks for them. And I wish I'd realized that at the time. This was the most personal conversation we had ever had and I, and I sat there, like, very silently, sort of 
holding back. I, I wanted to be, in my head, I was just like, you need to act very mature, very strong. But then the most jarring part was that I literally had to go, I had math homework. I literally had math homework to tomorrow and I was like, this is the most normal thing. I just went and did the most normal thing. And I was like, how, how am I supposed to do this when I know this information that is so much more important and so much more like valuable in the long run, ultimately? And you had told me you hadn't told Beckett yet. Now, I should tell you that fearing that he might be forced to say the word penis into a hot microphone, my son Beckett did not want to go on the record for this podcast. He's a teenage boy. I get it. Julia, she was 13 when I was diagnosed. She wrote an entire essay about the day I sat her down on our corduroy sofa and told her I was sick. Here's a little bit. You told me that you had cancer, and I just sat there looking at the frayed fabric of my backpack, wishing you hadn't said those words, and wishing you had told me anything else, any other horrible thing, just not that. Our house became the glass house, and you and me and Mom and Beck were small china bowls so delicate they could shatter at even the slightest touch. Turns out Julia read the essay for her high school English class. At the time, I didn't even know she'd written it. At the end of the vignette, I say that we were sort of in a glass house, but maybe that's not the right choice of words because glass house implies that people can see everything that's going on, and they couldn't. They couldn't see a lot of things. And talking to Julia five years later, I see what I missed at the time, too. Like how worried she was and how much she gave up. When you have to stay home and babysit your brother and then you see on Instagram or Snapchat that your friends went out for lunch or for dinner or to the movies, um, it can be a little bit hard because obviously you feel like you're missing out on something and then you're missing out on memories or the chance to get closer with certain people. And it's This is the thing about cancer. One person in a family gets it, but everyone's life changes. And mom would make these yogurt, granola, honey, fruit parfaits and she would, like, rub your feet. And it just became this, like nightly routine that would sort of calm you down and like help her sort of feel like she had control over a situation that most times was completely out of her hands. Mom was a trooper. See? Kids know everything. Even their dad's biggest fears. I was thinking like, is he going to lose his hair? That's hilarious. (laughs) And I also was thinking about that, (laughs) by the way. Next time on Mr. 80%, let's talk about sex, baby. Do you remember the, what my scrotum looked like? <laughs> you know what a scrotum is. I think they have a deep castration anxiety, and that's part of being a male. I can do a heart exam, but I can't check your prostate. What, what is that? What, what is the matter with us? Mr. 80% is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Kelly Horn wrote and produced the show with me and Scott Hellman, our executive producer. Audio mixing, sound design, and mastering by Tim Skogue. Brian McGrory is our executive editor. Our music is from APN. Thanks to David Porter at Mix One Studios in Boston 
and Natasha Redhead at Wise Buddha Studios in London for recording our interview with Stephen Fry. One quick disclaimer before we go. I'm not a doctor, not even close. So nothing in Mr. 80% should be construed as medical advice. If you have questions about your prostate, don't call me, call your doctor. For more about the show, visit bostonglobe.com slash prostate. There's additional information about prostate cancer. Meet some of the people from the episodes and read a magazine essay I wrote about my odyssey. And if you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Mark Shanahan. Thanks for listening. And these are not uh, Audrey Hepburn's feet we're talking about. I mean, she oh, was... no. She had creams and oils yeah. and clippers. Yeah, and these were like fucking right. And I have like donkey's feet. <laughs> yeah.